as we should. We've been studying through the book of Ephesians. And if I could say something about one of the underlying themes that we have hit that maybe is not as obvious um, just on a casual reading is the glory of God, right? The glory of God in his gospel of grace. Remember, even as we read through chapter one, that entire section on the, the blessedness of God for salvation in Christ, there, is, there was this repeated refrain to the praise of his glory. In other words, God's glory will be praised in eternity for the grace that he's shown in saving sinners through the death of Jesus Christ. See, the gospel will bring God glory. The gospel will bring God glory then, Right? Um, as they think about the gospel spreading and the salvation of souls, it will bring um, glory to God now as we continue in sharing the gospel, as people come to faith, as we celebrate baptism, as we, as we prioritize the truth of our redemption because of Jesus Christ, and it will glorify God in the future for all time. Because that's exactly the thing that we will most gladly glorify him for. We'll look back on human history and marvel at the generations and generations of wickedness and sin and our enslavement, our individual and corporate and worldwide and human-wide enslavement to sin and see that we have victory because of the death of Jesus Christ for all time. We will always glorify God because of his gospel of grace. And so in the midst of that, by the time we got to chapter two, we, we talked about how we were dead in our trespasses. There is no hope for us. We were by nature sons of disobedience. Under the influence of the prince of the power of the air, under the influence of the passions of our own flesh, under the influence and the enslavement of all of these things. But to God's glory, we have been saved by grace. Not of ourselves, not of works, so that no human being can boast of their salvation, but all because of God's grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. That's the glory of God. And so when we come to verse 11, verses 11 through, really through the end of this chapter, 22, but today we'll be looking at verses 11 through 18, it might seem a little anticlimactic. I mean, if you're honest, if you're reading quickly through the book of Ephesians, you might get to chapter 2. And as you get to the second part of chapter 2, starting in verse 11, this whole thing about reconciliation between Gentiles and Jews, you might think, okay, I think I'm a Gentile, right? And, and I, I know a few Jewish people. And so if, if that's what this is about, then the idea that we can all get along, that, that seems good and excellent, and I'm not against that, but it seems a little less dramatic, less significant than the glory of God in the grace of Jesus Christ and the cross work that has rescued us from our sin. But I, I think we fail to recognize something. Paul is writing this letter to a group of Christians who are predominantly Gentile. There are some Jews mixed in there, but they're all Christians, Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians. And what has come together in the body of believers called the church is something that is, that is unfathomable in that time. I was looking up some of the great feuds, just because as an introduction in the history of the world. 
And um, you, know, you guys remember the Hatfields and the McCoys. And that was a feud that ran from about the Civil War period for about three, four generations. And it culminated in, um, in one of the families, and I can't remember which now, right? Like entrapping the other family, catching the, the house on fire, ch- killing the children that ran out, and then murdering everybody else. So that the government got involved, people got arrested, right? All kinds of nonsense happened. And then it finally, a feud that lasted generations finally died. About 2003, 2004, Hatfields and McCoys appeared on the family feud. You guys know that show, right? Where like they answer questions and stuff. But several generations since all of that historic hatred, they, they are pretty cool with each other. Some of them intermingle. They do conferences together, right? Because they just talk about their, their history and how crazy their great-great-grandparents were, etc. It's interesting. But as much hatred as the Hatfields and the McCoys had for each other, that holds not a candle to the hatred between Jews and Gentiles. This, this may not seem that right to you because that's not something that you have seen. I mean, you may have seen, right, in, in the history of the world, some of the hatred of Gentiles towards Jews. Anti-Semitism has been something that has been generational, right? Things like the Holocaust, that's real. Like millions of human beings, because they are of an ethnic group, are killed, right? Um, uh, hatred towards that particular group of, of, of Jews, right? God's people, they were so particular about what they could eat, what they can't eat, when they worship, what they do, always culturally different from all the Gentiles around them, that it was natural for the society around them to think of them as different, otherly, outside, right? And not welcome. But I'm not sure if you knew, but the flip side was also true. That historically speaking, and this is not to say all Gentiles hated all Jews, nor is it to say all Jews hated all Gentiles, but there was a common belief that the Jews thought that, that Gentiles were really created, right, for the sake of being fuel for the fires of hell. And there's an actual law in, in past Judaism that said that it's not lawful for you to aid a Gentile woman in giving birth. For that would just bring another heathen into the world. The hatred ran both ways. And it ran not just generationally, but generation after generation after generation. I mean, multiple generations, through hundreds. In fact, through thousands of years, you can look back in the, in the Old Testament and the book of Esther, attest to how people groups hated the Jewish nation. And you can also see, right, throughout history, again, the teaching of, 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 of the Jewish elders that the, that the Gentiles were not to be trusted, they are to be hated, and that hatred ran deep. So when Scripture comes to this particular uh, portion in the book of Ephesians, and Paul, a Jewish, in fact, a Pharisaical Jewish, Christian convert, speaks to how God's grace is sufficient not just to rescue the dead and give them new life in Christ, it is sufficient to give the Hatfields and the McCoys, right? The Jews and the Gentiles. Those different people groups that hate each other because of either the color of their skin or their cultures or their borders or where they grew up or what your great-great-grand ancestors did to my great-great ancestors. All of that, could all of that feuding, could all of that fighting be reconciled 
because of the gospel. Just so that we're clear and we understand where we're going. The solution to all of human hatred and division is not, you know, better education, right? Is not, hey, can we just kind of get along? Can we just, you know, can we learn to kind of do... The only solution that will remove enmity between groups is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's a new identity, a new personhood. We go from alienation to reconciliation in the gospel to become one new people of God. And that's what really the rest of chapter 2 is about. And the reason why I started with introducing God's glory in the gospel is because this is an element of God's glory in the gospel. We are, we are prone to kind of, I don't know, push it to the side or think it to be less significant that we are to be one new people, right, as God's children in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this, this is part of what Paul is trying to drive home in the theology of the grace of God. Why is God's grace so, so glorious and to be glorified in all eternity? Because we as individual sinners and rebels have been saved by the death of Jesus Christ. But it also means that we as individuals who might have otherwise enmity with other sinners and individuals have come together as a corporate whole and there is nothing between us. We can be one in Christ because that's what the gospel is capable of doing, bringing sinners to our God and Savior and bring sinners together one to another. So let's take a look at this passage together. I will read for us verses 11 through 18, and then we'll pray and unpack this. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." It might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we come to your scriptures now, remind us of the depth of the transformation of our souls when we have repented and turned to Christ alone for salvation. Remind us of the hope for all of humanity that exists only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remind us, Lord, that um, though we feel like we're beyond it, um, hatred for groups, hatred for people, struggles and alienation between one another will still run rampant among sinners. And often shows itself even amongst Christians in the church. But Lord, we, we should be a different people. Would you help us, Lord, to think more carefully 
about how to embrace those that might be different from us in so many ways, but are exactly like us in being sinners and having found Jesus Christ to be the only Savior of their souls. Lord, we thank you that across this whole world, there are people that don't speak our language, that don't eat the kind of foods that we eat, that don't live in circumstances that are similar to us at all, but they are so like us as brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, help us to cherish that. Help us, help us to encourage that. Help us to delight in the fact that we could be different and unified because of who we are, because we are in one family, because of what the gospel does. We praise you for that truth and ask that you will bless our time around the scriptures now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, to give you an idea where we're going, verses 11 through 13 speaks of how we are brought near in Christ. Um, and then verses 14 through 16 talk about how we are made one in Christ. In fact, we will bear down on that a little bit because it speaks of how we are a new humanity in Christ. And then verses 17 and 18 just glorify the fact that Christ is the one that brings us in and really brings us home. So let's begin with what it means that we are brought near in Christ. How we go from alienation to reconciliation by being brought near in Christ. And it, it starts here in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. It begins with this idea of alienation. By alienation, we mean that you are otherly, that you are separate, that you're not part of this. It's that, it's that feeling you got, remember, in elementary school or middle school when, you know, those guys were gathered around talking about something. You walked into that conversation and they looked at you like, what are you doing here? Right? It's like that, but amplified. You, you don't belong here. You're not of us. You're of them. You, you don't belong. And that's why we're saying alienation, as in you are of a separate or an outside source. This is not where you belong. And so Paul commands these Christians, the Ephesian Christians, right, both Gentiles and Jewish Christians. And I, I, I would constantly remind you that we're talking about Christians here. Jewish by background, but Christians. Gentiles by background, but Christians. But these Christians, he tells them, remember what, for the Gentiles, remember what it was for them to be on the outside looking in. Remember being outcasts. Now, I'm using the term Gentile, and we should define that maybe if you're not familiar with that. Right? As far as the Jewish mind was concerned, there was only two categories of human beings. Right? There was the Jew, God's people, and there were the nations. So in the Old Testament, the Hebrew term for the Gentiles or everyone that is non-Jewish was goim. And that's a term that literally means the nations or the outside people groups. It's everyone that is not Jewish. Right? Everyone that's not of Israel, that's goim. That's the Old Testament term for the Gentiles. And that would be, I think, most, if not all of us in the room. Right? Your, your background is probably not Jewish. And if it is Jewish, you're of a, a blessed heritage. But if it's not, right, then you are of every, everyone else, according to the Jewish way of thinking. In the Greek language, in our New Testament, it's the ethne, in which we get the term ethnic. Right? It is... The, the people groups. 
And again, it's a word that means the nations, the tribes, or the people, the outsiders again, right? Now, sometimes in the scriptures, they use the term the Greeks, right? The Jews versus the Greeks, meaning the Gentiles again, meaning those that are of the Greek-speaking influenced world. It is all of those that are not God's people. In our English, the term Gentile comes from the Latin gentilis. And that's to come, all of these terms mean the exact same thing. The goim, the ethne, right? The gentilis, all Gentiles, all the non-Jews versus the Jews. And Paul puts emphasis on that in verse 11 by saying, remember that you, the nations, that the non-Jewish people in the flesh, meaning this is what you are by birth, by flesh, by heritage, you are called uncircumcision by those that call themselves circumcision. And he says that in a way that suggests that that's wrong that they do that, right? You were called, right? He doesn't say you were, but he says you were called the uncircumcision. Why is he talking about circumcision here? Well, because circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 17, right? And so every good Jewish male child was circumcised on the eighth day of his life. And so in, in Philippians, right? In Philippians 2, Paul talks about that, how he is a Jew of Jews. He was circumcised the eighth day. I mean, that's, he's saying, I'm legitimately Jewish, Right? Because every Jewish boy would be circumcised on the eighth day if his parents were proper and good Jewish parents. And so in their pride, the, what he uses, the term, by what is called the circumcision, that's the phrase he uses here in verse 11, right? In other words, the so-called circumcision call you the uncircumcised. They make that distinction, and part of it is, is physical, obviously, because right? circumcision is physical. Part of it is cultural, they don't, but we do, right? But part of it is spiritual or religious, right? We have the sign of Abraham and the promise of blessing that God has given to Abraham for all generations. What do they have? They have nothing. And so when he says, remember being outcast, he's talking about the entirety of being outcast. Not just, not just being, you know, outside in terms of being different physically or even being, you know, different yeah, um, uh, culturally, you know, the stuff you eat, you eat stuff that's unclean, and they're like, what are you talking about? This stuff is delicious. It's not unclean, right? And then, and then on, the, on the, you know, to, to, to exasperate it even further, it's, it's also religious. And when you put all that stuff together, there is an intensity of the distinction of you are on the outside by a lot. But so that we understand circumcision in the Old Testament was the sign of Abraham. It was certainly that. But that's not all that God wanted out of the idea of being different from the nations. In fact, the Old Testament scriptures and uh, the prophets in particular, but even back in, in the giving of the law in Deuteronomy, God speaks about the circumcision that needs to be of the heart. In Deuteronomy ten sixteen, he says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be lo no longer stubborn. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. His intention was not to give them a means to say, Oh, you're so different from us. You don't belong here. God's intention was to give them a sign that would remind them of something that's deeper, that they were supposed to be distinct. Right? But they're supposed to be distinct in a way that led them to love the Lord and to love, right? On behalf of the Lord, one another. True circumcision 
was a sign of the covenant because it was an issue of the heart. That's what they began to miss. That's what they didn't understand. So Colossians 2, 11 through 12 says, In him also you were circumcised, but with a circumcision not made with hands, but putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. In other words, every Christian in that sense, in the spiritual sense, has been circumcised, right? Is, has been set apart for the things of the Lord. So whereas, right, the emphasis of some of these Jewish individuals was that you are so different and alienated, God's point is that all those that have come to faith are part of the community of faith. Verse 12, they are to remember not only that they're outsiders, but how alienated they were. Look at verse 12, and it gives us the complete picture. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. And by that, I think Paul is saying that not only were you not a believer, because Jewish individuals that weren't converted are similarly separated from Christ. But I think the idea is that you're separated from any idea of a, of a Savior, of a Messiah, of a Christ to come. At least the Jewish people held on to that hope, right? Even when they do the Jewish Passover Seder, Right? I, I like to mention this. They usually send the youngest child that could walk and talk right, to the front door to check if Elijah's there. And he always goes and opens the door. And, no, Elijah's not here. They do that every year, every time they practice the Seder at Passover. And Elijah is always not there. And it's a given. If you have Jewish friends and you ask them about that, it's just kind of a tradition. They know Elijah's not there. But why do they even look for Elijah? Because the promise of Elijah, one like Elijah, crying out in the wilderness, he will hearken in the Messiah's coming. It's meant to remind them that the Messiah will be coming. That the Messiah will, the Christ will appear. Well, the, the Gentiles never even heard the term Christ or Messiah or anointed one, right? They were separated from that concept. They were, secondly, in verse 12, they're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, they weren't part of the nation of God, the nation is of Israel. They weren't part of that commonwealth, that community. They weren't insiders. They were outsiders. They're Gentiles. Even if they came to the temple to pray, there was an outside area of the court that was meant for the nations, for the, for, for the Gentiles to come and pray. They, they couldn't come into the part that belonged only to the commonwealth of Israel. These were, second, these were more, and strangers, it says, to the covenants of promise. The Gentiles had no connection, right, with any of the promises given to the nation of Israel. They were always on the outside, always not knowing how much they were missing. That's what it means to grow up, right, without the hope of the gospel or the hope of Scripture in people's lives. Whenever I think about Gentiles and the Jewish worldview, I always think of, like, if we adapted it to the Christian worldviews, right, I think about, like, like you know, um, us as a nation being a post-Christian culture, right? Like if you talk about things of a Christian nature, right? Then most, most Americans understand what we're talking about, right? 
morals being significant, that there is a God, even if they don't agree, they know what we're talking about because they come from a post-Christian culture. There, there's certain values that they understand and maybe even reject, but nevertheless that are biblical or that are from a Christian worldview. That, that, that is part of the influence of, of those that have founded this nation. So we're a post-Christian culture here. But you go to other, world, other parts of the world, like Japan, they're not post-Christian. They're post-pagan. They, they, they are Jewish or Shintoist or spiritualist by background. They come with no expectation or understanding of why this is wrong or this is wrong. They, they come from a completely different perspective, Right? They, they're thinking about why the world is the way it is because there's powers and influences and gods or spirits and they kind of do all that stuff. And even if a modern day Japanese person that you run into on the street rejects all of those spiritual notions, he has no concept of what Jesus is. He has no concept of the idea that there is a one God, right? And he demands holiness from all of his creation. They have no concept of a redemption that is purchased by the blood or the sacrifice of another. None of that fits in their categories. That's what we mean by post-pagan. Well, if we would adapt this, the point that Paul is trying to make is you are alienated from God in every way. In your worldview, in your religious views, in how you kind of formulate your thinking about what is right and wrong, you have been so separate from all of that that is true, that has been, been given by privilege to the Jewish people, the Old Testament scriptures, and the hope of God that will be presented in a Messiah to come. You, you're without all of that. And so that final statement at the end of verse 12, look at that. Having no hope and without God in the world. This is the climax of all the deficiencies that he has just listed. Because remember that there was a time when you had no hope. See, at least the Jewish people, they send somebody to go see if Elijah's at the door. For us, for the Gentile world, Paul is saying, you, you had no hope. Your hope was that Zeus might come through for you. That Epaphrodite might, might, you know, might do something nice for you. Your hope is in something kind of that the world or that some spirit of, of a mountain might kind of bless you or give you a fruitful harvest. You have no real hope. And you are without God in this world. In fact, the term without God translates a single word. Atheos. It is, it is adding the alpha privative, the, the negative. It's like adding an un, Right? In front of theos, God. You, you had, right? You had no hope and you had a non God world. You had an atheos, an atheistic world, right? The term was used in, um, in Greek literature, atheos, uh, to signify someone who has never heard of the gods, who disdain or deny. God or the gods or who is forsaken by them. Paul chooses the right term. He's trying to say, remember what you were as outsiders and aliens, how you are not just unwelcome, but there's no reason why you would walk into the temple. It holds no value or meaning for you whatsoever. You had no hope and you had no God in this world. Well, that is all changed in Christ. Look at verse 13. 
we have been brought near in Christ. See, this is what the gospel does. It takes those that are hopeless in bondage, right? They might not even have categories for what it is that, that they don't understand. I just think of uh, my, my late grandmother on my mom's side. Um, I had hardly seen her in my life. In fact, the only time I spent any time with her was uh, when Kathy and I got married. She flew out from Korea. First time she left the, the country of South Korea in her life. And she came uh, for the wedding. And I remember my mom sharing the gospel with her in Korean. And her saying, honestly, like, no, no, that's, you're talking about crazy stuff. Like, and she just made it clear, like, listen, her thing is, I'm Korean. I'm old school. I'm Buddhist by background. I don't even, I don't have a category for understanding what you're talking about. Right, All these things about sin and death and the need for death because of sin. Like She's like, that, that's nothing to do with anything that I know. And that's, that's what it means to be alienated from God. Not even knowing that you don't know. This is, this is how deep and, and, and distant alienation from God has been for these Gentiles. But now, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You cannot imagine a more dramatic reversal. right? We're not, we're not talking about those guys that were pretty close. They kind of grew up going to church with their friend most of their lives. They grew up in you know, the United States thinking church is a good thing, that if they get married and have kids one day, they'll force their kids to go to church. That's how I was introduced to church. right? My best friend, Danny Tukasato, uh, and I in elementary school, we used to get into trouble a lot. Right. And so Danny's parents thought it's a good idea for you rascals to go to church. And so they would drop us off. They didn't go to church. Right. They would literally drop us off at Gardena Valley Baptist Church. Right. And go, you guys go inside and ask them where you're supposed to go. And then they would leave. I don't know what they would do. They'd go out, have fun or whatever, go shopping, have lunch without us. Right. And then we would just go. And that's how that's how we're introduced to church. Praise the Lord that that was an introduction to the things of the Lord that built upon right, my, my framework, my thinking about the world, and ultimately culminated in Christ opening my heart to receive him unto salvation by the time I got to be a freshman in college. Alienated, separated, not belonging, but now in Christ, you who were once far off. I love that spatial concept. It's not just physically. I mean, this is culturally. This is mentally. This is spiritually. You are so far away that you're like, I don't even have categories for this. There is a God, but there's three persons, but he's one God, right? And the second one, who is the son to the father, he comes and becomes a man, but he's still God and he's man. And then he lives a perfect life And he's going to die, but not because he had to die, not because he deserved to die. In fact, he wouldn't have died on his own, but he died intentionally to pay the price of everyone else because everyone else deserved to die. And now he is raised from the dead. He exalted on high and all those that believe on him are forgiven of their sins and their sin and his righteousness has been exchanged and they will spend eternity, right? With the glory of God in him. See, the in Christ is so significant. This, will come, this has come up so many times already in Ephesians, and it'll keep coming up. But in Christ, not, not just, but now, 
You know, you guys are different. It's not, but now you have changed and transformed yourself. No, it is in Christ. And it is only in Christ. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by his blood. So that we are clear, right? That not only have we been brought near, but we are brought near by the blood of Christ. Let's define things a little bit for us. What does it mean that we're brought near? What are we brought near to? See, the temptation might be for us to say, well, we're brought near to God's people, the Jewish people, right? See, the wrong-headed thinking of that was that that would lead us to what Paul is strongly against in all of his letters, in particular in the letter to the Galatian Christians, where it sounds like, hey, you're a Gentile, an outsider, alienated. And so now if you want to become a Christian, you got to come through the path of being a Jew first you got to keep the dietary restrictions. You need to be circumcised. You need to do all the things that the rest of us Jewish Christians, the real Christians, do. That's not what we're brought near to. We're not brought near to becoming more Jewish and then to be Jewish and then to be Christian. No, because as we will see in a bit, it is both Jews and Gentiles, both, that needed to be brought near, in particular to be brought near to God. And they can only be brought near to God because of Jesus Christ. The, the point is not to make the Gentiles like the chosen people of Israel, but to form a new people, a final people, a transformed people, a new creation kind of people that would include Jews and Gentiles. They include Americans and Asians and Russians and Africans and Europeans and rich people and poor people, educated people, uneducated people. Just human beings that are sinners can all be brought near. This is the dramatic Reversal of those that were so far away and now brought near to the throne of grace. And the other thing we, we already mentioned it is by the blood of Christ. Everything changed because of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. When sins were atoned for, our separation from Christ was canceled. Our alienation from God was canceled. And our separation and alienation from God's people and his hope becomes God with us, all right? We are no longer strangers and aliens, but we're fellow citizens of heaven. That's what it means that we are brought near in Christ. Well, secondly, we are made one in Christ. Take a look at verse 14 there. Verse 14 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. We are one people in peace. This is an interesting statement in verses 14 and 15. Paul says that Jesus himself, Christ himself, is our peace. That's kind of the title sentence of the rest of that, the several verses. If we think of it as a paragraph, it's almost like that's the thematic, you know, the the underpinning. This is the statement he wants to make, that Jesus himself is our peace. And you notice the, the equivalence there? He himself is peace. He is our peace. And then did you also notice that there's a shift in, in personal pronouns again, right? It started off, therefore, you remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, you were called this, you were this, you were separated, you were alienated. And then now, by the time we get to verse 14, it says, Christ himself is our peace. First person plural possessive, right? He is our peace. And as Paul is talking, he as a Jewish Christian is saying, you and us both. And it says just as much in the next phrase, who has made us both one 
and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He is our peace. That, that term is very significant because it is the greeting, um, right, in the Hebrew language. You know, you have a, a very Jewish friend. He might say shalom, right? That means, that means peace, literally. But it's the, it's, you can translate that hello. It's the greeting. But the term shalom, right, means so much more. It denotes well-being in the broadest and the deepest sense. The idea is wholeness, right? Um, not just a, a, a cessation of hostilities. It's not just the truce. The idea is that kind of peace that makes everything good. We're good. We're whole, right? We're content. We're okay. It's that kind of peace. It's the kind of peace that says that we're good, right? Because if, if you are a human being, you probably have some relationships with other human beings. And if you as a sinner have had any relationship with any other sinners, then you know that it's difficult to have this kind of wholeness, completeness, well-being in our relationship one to another, right? We might have that for a period of time, but it takes a little bit of selfishness, a little bit of pride, and lest you know, you know how... How unsurprising, right? We find ourselves in something of a push and, t- you know, push and pull. We find ourselves fighting or arguing or not feeling that great about each other. Peace as a term is so, deep, so much deeper than simply we don't fight anymore or we don't fight out loud. You, you've heard that from couples sometimes like, oh, yeah, we never argue. It's like, okay, that's great. But how about in your heart? How about in your soul? Like, do you feel enmity, upset, frustrated, etc.? Use whatever terminology. Use lighter terminology if that helps you, right? I was just a little frustrated with you. Oh, that's why you threw dishes at me, right? But whatever it is, I mean, we feel upset with each other because peace is so elusive. And the, the, this statement, this phrase in and of itself is a solution to so much that is wrong in terms of our interpersonal relationships. Who is our peace or what is our peace? Christ himself is our peace. And by the way, um, often um, the himself is, uh, the pronoun is put in there. It's not necessary. You know, that phrase would read the same, for he is our peace. But the himself intensifies, intensifies, right, the subject. And that happens often through Paul's epistles, but particularly here in Ephesians. We'll see the he himself, he himself, he himself, to say that there is only one and it is only Christ. And Christ himself is our peace. He's our shalom. He's our wholeness, our completeness. He's the thing that makes it like we're good, right? We're good with God and we're good with one another. And it makes sense that Christ is our peace. Why? Because our Christmas verse tells us, right? Isaiah 9, 6. If you don't put that on your Christmas card at some point, then, you know, your Old Testament theology is kind of bad, right? He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting father, and the prince of peace. i give you kind of a, um, a lesser known prophecy about the Messiah in Micah uh, 5, 5. It says, and he shall be their peace. He is going to be the personification of peace. And, and, and the personification of peace, right, does this. Look at the second part of verse 14. Who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He makes us both, referring to Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and he makes us one because he is our peace. And in him, we have become one and he has broken down, right, the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. 
This is unthinkable, all right, to the Jewish world. I, I imagine that's part of the reason why the non-Christian Jewish people and leaders push back so hard on this new religion called the way. Because it's so weird. Like, wait, you're eating with those Gentiles? That's illegal, right? That's morally outrageous. Wait, you are encouraging your daughter to marry a Gentile? You can't do that. That's forbidden, right? And it goes on and on. Like, like how can we be connect, connected with them? And we are because Christ has destroyed that which is the dividing wall of hostility between us. The fact that it was hostility means that there was anger, strong enmity, right? Not just uncomfortableness, but there was, there was, there was enmity. We were enemies of one another. And that wall of eneminess Right has been broken down in Christ's death. Notice it's broken down in his flesh, meaning that when he was crucified, there was no longer this dividing wall of hostility that was left. It looked like this. In Luke 18, is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Two men went up into the temple to pray, and this is the Pharisee's prayer. Right, The Pharisee standing by himself prayed this way. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. See, the way that he saw it, the otherliness, the alienness of that guy was the worst of all. There's extortioners, that's bad. There's people that are unjust, that, that flip justice, like, like dishonest judges, right? There's adulterers, people who break covenant to go do stuff that is, that is both immoral, illegal, and that injures human beings, and the most intimate relationships. And there's even on the top of the heap of all of those wicked sinners, people like this, a tax collector, here in the temple courtyard to pray. I'm so not like that guy. Praise the Lord, I'm not like that guy. That's what that looked like, that dividing wall. And I think what, what Paul is referring to in terms of the dividing wall is the dividing wall of that, that keeping of the law by the way of the legalist or the Pharisaic Judaic people. In other words, what, what, what was causing all this hostility? Well, because they had a way of living. And your way of living is not the right way of living. And I think that's why Scripture speaks, the New Testament speaks so strongly against this attitude of judgmentalism, particularly any kind of judgmentalism between Christian to Christian. Right, Because if you are casting upon some, hey, you need to do this, and it's not scripturally based, that person is not necessarily in sin. If you're saying, hey, this is a Sabbath, you can't go out to eat on the Sabbath. This is church and God's people. You need to be wearing certain things, and you shouldn't be wearing certain things. How dare some of you guys be wearing shorts, right? Or T-shirts. This is church, bro, right? Right, like by casting those judgments on each other, what happens? Well, we build up a, a dividing wall that demands hostility, that says that you are not of us or you're not of the right kind of us, right? And so in doing that, and I think that's one of the reasons why we divide one from another. And I think that's one of the main reasons why Jesus is so clear about the Sabbath keeping is no longer applicable. It's not the way that you do it. It's not, it's not the emphasis that you guys place on it. So yeah, so he, you know, the Pharisee's always mad. And he would say, well, don't you guys rescue animals on the Sabbath if they fall into a ditch? Don't you eat on the Sabbath? Don't you do, like, you're missing the whole point. The Sabbath is meant for men to rest, 
not to enslave them to a thing they can or cannot do. And his point is that in Christ, we have become one people. He has made us both one, Jews and Gentiles, by breaking down in his death, in his flesh, this dividing wall of hostility. And then verse 15 tells us the rest, right? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And again, it's not because the law was wicked. It's because the overemphasis on its application was. Abolish is probably not the best term. That word can be translated abolish. It's probably nullified, made to no effect. And the idea here, I think, is that the Old Testament law no longer is effectual. It's not required. There's no Sabbath keeping anymore. There may be good principles for us to borrow from that, but none of it is absolutely, right, unless it's been reiterated in the New Testament, is no longer applicable to us. We do not live under the law. Period. Hard stop. Exclamation if you need it, right? And it's something that the Jewish Christians needed to hear, but something that the Gentile Christians needed to hear, to know that you're, you're, you're not mostly of us, You are actually one with us. He has made the two of us one. And then verse 15, the rest of verse 15 and 16. And what has resulted is one new man reconciled in Christ. This is one of the most significant statements in this whole dialogue about the unity of the body of Christ. Verse 15, we saw the first part of it, right? Um, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. But look at the second part. That expresses in purpose, right? That, for this purpose. He abolished the wall of hostility. He abolished, right, or nullified. Um, he nullified the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That, for this purpose, he might create in himself, again, again he might create in Christ, one new man in place of the two, thus making peace. That he might create in himself, it's the terminology of new creation. In fact, it's the same words. One is used as a noun. One is used as a verb. It's the same words as our, as our verse, 2 Corinthians 5.17, that we are a new creation, right? There, it's talking about every individual Christian transformed by the gospel as a new creation. Here, it's talking about the corporate dynamic of groups and saying that Jews that are now Christians, Gentiles that are not Christians, are all put together as one new, new creation, humanity. Literally, the phrase, if you put it in its right word order, says this, that the two are created in him to be one new man, one new humanity. The redeemed are no longer Jewish or Gentiles. It doesn't mean that they are no longer culturally Jewish or Gentile or ethnically Jewish or Gentile. It doesn't mean that they can't, you know, like halal food, right? Or like, like pork and seafood, right? That's allowable. The point, though, is that spiritually and corporately, they are a new man, a new human being. They are no longer Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians. They're just Christians. It's a whole new humanity and race that has been created by the work of Jesus Christ. If we are in Christ, right, this is his purpose, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And look at the second part in verse 16. And there's a second purpose, right? And that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing 
thereby killing the hostility. There are two purposes. One is that he could create himself a new man that is one, making peace. And that in being one, that we might be reconciled to God, both of us together to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing any leftover hostility. It suggests that reconciliation with each other, the horizontal, is the other side of the same coin of our reconciliation with God, vertically, right? And what I find interesting about that is I would usually expect the vertical to be mentioned first, that we are right with God, right? We are reconciled with God. Reconciliation, the term means that we are, we are together and that we love each other, right? And that, um, that it implies that before we're at enmity, we're at hostility with each other. And the first and foremost thing seems to me that it's that we were at enmity with God, but that we are now reconciled with him. And then out of that flow my reconciliation with everyone else. But Paul flips that. And I think he flips that because in this entire context, everything up to this point in Ephesians has been about our reconciliation with God. And he's trying to say this this horizontal doesn't come later when you feel like it. He's trying to say this is just as significant. That, that, That how you define who a Christian is will be because they are right with the Lord and they're also right with fellow believers. Listen, if this sounds a little too kumbaya for you, right? A little bit like, hey, should we all get along? You know, we should all love each other, right? If that sounds weird to you, then I think you're not reading the New Testament very well. Listen to just some of the language, right? Of a guy named Jesus, maybe? John 13, 35. By this, by what? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. What am I going to say next? If you have love for one another. Most Christians in this room, they, they know how that verse ends. But the application of that is so difficult. Especially if that Christian, okay, yeah, he's a Christian, but his theological perspective on something is very questionable, right? Can we not disagree and still acknowledge in love that that's a brother or sister in Christ? We, listen, sometimes we have to disagree strong enough, and you guys know if you're members of this church, sometimes we have to disagree strong enough to say, listen, you can't be a member of this church. You should go be a member of that church, right? But there's no need for me to think you're otherly in the sense that you're not a believer, But it is appropriate for me to say that your conviction about some things cannot mesh with our conviction about some things, right? That's all right. But they will know us. Who will know us? All people will know us by what? By our love for one another. Or let me put it another way. 1 John chapter 2, verse verse 9 through 11. Whoever says he he is in the light, I'm in the light. I'm holy. And hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He's not just in darkness, but he's blind to the fact that he is not a believer. Or at least he's not acting like one if he doesn't love his brother because that is a hallmark of genuine Christians. Why? Because they are made into one new humanity, reconciled to one another and reconciled to God. Hey, we're going to finish. Let's go to the last one. Finally, we are brought home in Christ. I put it that way because it doesn't talk about necessarily home, but it talks about coming to the Father. Right? Verse 17 and 18, I'll put both points up there real quickly. 
Verse 17 says, not only did Christ become our peace, right? That was earlier. He is our peace in verse 14. But that he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. He's saying this, the same message of peace and reconciliation for the Gentiles who had no concept of the things of the Lord and for the Jews who had many concepts of the things of the Lord and got it wrong. He preached peace to them and to you and to all of us together. Verse 18, he brings us home. I want you to notice one, the Trinitarian nature, right? It's the Son, it's the Father, and it's the Spirit, all mentioned in verse 18. For through Him, who is Him? Christ, the Son. We both have access in one Spirit. And by in one Spirit, I think the idea is through the agency of that one Spirit to the Father. It's the work of the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit that brings us home. Romans 5, 1 through 2 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. If this person is a Jewish Christian, if this person is a Gentile Christian, if there's a person that grew up in the church, or there's a person that had no concept of God or sin as they grew up, if they have heard the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only are they welcomed in, but they're welcome to become one, to join in this fellowship. That, that's why church is so valuable and important. And why Hebrews 10 speaks of forsaking the assembly as a sin. This is your church family. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But the emphasis on the New Testament is not go find a family, build a family, and bring them to your church. It's the opposite. The church is your family. Your family might be messed up. But the church, that is your people. That is your brothers and sisters in Christ. That is your first place that you turn to, to know that you have oneness, belonging, that you're home. And Lord willing, you bring your family along for that ride as well. It, this is climactic to what Paul has been building up in Ephesians 2. And I'm not saying that, that you know, justification by grace through faith in Christ alone, that that is, that is smaller. It's not. But it's like saying that, that our unity in Christ, our oneness in Christ, because of what God has done, will also bring God glory in all eternity. Like we were far off, every single person in this room, and we we're brought near by the same message of Jesus Christ. Right? And so regardless of what your background is, what your struggles were, or maybe what your background is and what your struggle currently is, lay them down at the cross. Come to faith in Christ and become Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, before you are anything else. Because that's your identity in Christ. And that binds us together, and it reconciles us to one another, and it reconciles us to a holy God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for our encouraging time of, uh, of hearing scripture, as well as praising your name and, and praise and the singing of, um, of songs that, that recognize your work in Jesus Christ for, on our behalf. Lord, I pray that our fellowship would be sweet. I pray that as a church, Lord, our members might understand how sweet our fellowship should be, that we would build into one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, that kind of love that it is obvious to the world that there's something different about us. We praise you for the glory of your grace, displayed in salvation, displayed in the wholeness of the church, and the new humanity that is called Christian. 
We praise you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.